0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 131. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I am recording this episode on October 30th, 2023, in New Orleans. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. Before we jump into the history fun, please make note that I will be in Denver for the afternoon and evening on November 12th, 2023. And I'm going to do another meetup of fans of the podcast. I'll be staying downtown in the Brown Palace. And we'll probably host it nearby, if not actually in one of the hotel bars. Probably about 4 to 7 p.m., something like that. Please send me a note by any of the usual means. Direct message on Twitter or Facebook or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. If you think you can make it so I can get the appropriate space arranged... I hope you can make it. If you look up online timelines of wars between European settlers and Indian nations of the Eastern Seaboard, most of them cover the Pequot War and then skip to King Philip's War in 1670 with nary a mention of Keefe's War or the fighting in Maryland or New Sweden about the same time. Opa final attack of 1644 is typically folded into a general summary of the Anglo-Powhatan Wars from 1610 to 1646, as if the fighting were constant for 36 years. In reality, the 1640s and 50s saw a series of conflicts up and down the eastern seaboard between and among various European settlements and local tribes, in many cases in places where there had not been fighting before. The question is, what had changed? My first thought was to roll through these small wars chronologically, but the more I read, the more I realized that would not be very illuminating. One of the reasons is that there is even less documentation about these battles than there was about Keefe's war. We know, for example, that the Susquehannocks whipped the Marylanders in an early skirmish, but only from the faintest of references. A better reason, though, is that most of these small wars are interesting less for what we know happened on the battlefield than as echoes of the wider geopolitical struggle, not only among the nations, both indigenous and European of North America, but also, to some degree, as a function of competition between European powers. This episode, therefore, looks down from a higher altitude than is usual for this podcast, The goal here is to set the stage so that forthcoming episodes covering the period between roughly 1640 and 1670 hang together a bit better. In order to do that, I'm going to rehash some of the history that you already know, at least if you have been listening attentively. The idea is to develop a framework for thinking about the roughly 40 chronological years and the more than 70 episodes on our timeline, since the French, English, and Dutch began exploring the northeastern coast, and I think a certain amount of repetition will be useful in that. The best place to start is the beginning. The three northern European powers of France, England, and the Netherlands were late to exploration of North America, because they were boxed out by Spain and Portugal. During the 1500s, while Spain subjugated and colonized the Americas south of the Rio Grande, and even began to encroach north of it in New Mexico and Florida. The northern Europeans largely confined themselves to fishing off the coast of New England and Canada's maritime provinces, neither of which existed, obviously, as political places. The only real exceptions were the very short-lived settlements of the French Huguenots in South Carolina and Florida in the 1560s and the three English attempts on the outer banks of North Carolina, the last of which was the famous Lost Colony of Roanoke. The many nameless fishermen, however, were active off the northeast of North America from the 1520s. They caught, salted, and dried cod, and sometimes came ashore and traded with Indians. There they saw no evidence whatsoever of gold or silver. But the Indians did have one commodity that was immensely valuable in Europe of the late 17th century— Furs. One could go on and on about the importance of furs in a cold climate. For that, you might read Eric J. Dolan's book, Fur, Fortune, and Empire, The Epic History of the Fur Trade in America. Suffice it to say that not only did furs keep one warm and fashionable, they could be beaten into felt for hats, which very much came into vogue at the time. This drove up the price of furs in Europe, and that crushed the population of furry Eurasian animals. Even in Russia, which had opened up its fur trade with Western Europe in the mid-1500s, you remember the Moscovy Company, right? Furs were becoming scarce. So you can imagine that when these first fishermen along the coast of New England saw Indians swaddled in furs, they also saw opportunity furs started coming home to northern Europe alongside barrels of salted codfish. The pelts that would become most prized were those of the North American beaver, especially from northern climes and especially when hunted in late winter and early spring, when their fur was at its thickest. Europeans knew what beavers were, because it was a Eurasian beaver that was similar to the North American version. Unfortunately, it had been hunted to the brink of extinction even by 1600, as late as 1900, roughly the start of the conservation era, only about 1,200 Eurasian beavers survived in eight small relic populations. Parenthetically, the Eurasian beaver survives today and is no longer on the brink of extinction because of aggressive protection and reintroduction. Since it is interesting, here's a bit from Dolan's book on the beaver, which is a, a big rodent. Quote, The European and North American beaver differ in their number of chromosomes and a few behavioral characteristics, but otherwise are largely indistinguishable. Beavers grow up to 4 feet long and weigh as much as 110 pounds, although they average 40 to 50. The only large rodent is the capybara, or water hog, of South America, which also reaches 4 feet but can pack as many as 150 pounds onto its beefy frame. Both the modern beaver and the capybara, however, are Lilliputian, compared with the extinct giant beaver, which roamed ancient forests alongside woolly mammoths and may have been up to seven feet long and have weighed nearly 500 pounds. Firstly, what about the ROUSs? Rodents of unusual size? I don't think they exist. It's been a long time since I put in a goofy clip, but that one was impossible to resist. Anywho, with the end of Spanish naval hegemony in the Atlantic after 1588, not going to mention Francis Drake no matter how much you want me to, it became much safer for the Northern Europeans to get on with it in North America. The French, English, and Dutch all dispatched expeditions, slowly at first and then accelerating. The French, under Samuel de Champlain, came in 1603 with a specific monopoly to trade furs, from his king and possible father, Henry IV. The English competed with them down the coast following Champlain's wake. The West Country branch of the Virginia Company set up the short lived Popham Colony in 1608 at Sagadahawk, Maine, which successfully traded for furs even with relatively hostile local tribes before it withdrew. In sixteen oh nine, the English captain Henry Hudson sailing for the Dutch, was dispatched to find a northeast passage over Russia, but turned his ship around and sailed for North America and up the river that now bears his name. There Hudson traded for pelts, and the Dutch forgave his frolic and detour when they learned of his discovery. They returned to the region to trade for more beaver within two years, which was almost instantaneously by the standards of the day. There were, of course, many reasons other than furs for the Northern Europeans to come to North America, all of which we have touched upon along the way. They remained worried about competition with and the containment of Spain, which was still very powerful. They wanted nearby bases for their privateers to attack Spanish shipping over the line. They still believed there was a Northwest Passage to Asia, which would, if it existed, vastly reduce the costs of trading with China and Japan. They wanted to save Indian souls. They hoped to discover gold and silver. And in the case of the English, they came as religious refugees. The important thing is this. All of these expeditions, regardless of their motives, required investment. And the investors required an economic return. In the absence of a Northwest Passage and deposits of gold and silver, that return had to come from commodities, valuable as codfish and timber were, it quickly became clear that nothing was nearly as lucrative in the north as trading with the Indians for furs. That is why the humble pilgrims of New Plymouth took to it almost immediately as a means of paying off their debts. Long-standing and attentive listeners will remember the Lord of Misrule, Thomas Morton, whom the pilgrims pushed out of his settlement at Marymount, They did so because, in addition to being a party animal, Morton was cutting into their fur trade. In order to get fur, the Europeans needed business-like relationships with the tribes in the region because they didn't have the first clue how to hunt beaver themselves. They traded for pelts, and their currency was, at first, tools, weapons, and other products that Indians could not manufacture. The favorite European products included metal pots and kettles, knives, hatches, saws, hose for cultivation, woven fabrics, and, at first occasionally and then more frequently, guns and booze. Apart from the booze, the European technology had a hugely favorable impact on the standard of living of the indigenous peoples. Their standard of living slowly came to depend on European products, so they devoted more and more of their time to killing furry beasts. As years passed, the ancient artisanal skills of the Indians atrophied, so there were fewer people and knew how to make, for example, arrows with points made of stone or bone. Also, as various tribes obtained guns, powder, and shot in quantity, were long-standing indigenous rivals and enemies needed to do the same. Unfortunately, the incessant European demand for furs and the bottomless Indian demand for European goods meant that beavers and other cute little guys would be depopulated locally. This led to two big shifts. First, to get the pelts they needed, Local Indians would have to trade with tribes that were more remote, often Indians of the Iroquois Confederacy in upstate New York, where there were still grillions of beaver. That meant that there were now middlemen who needed to be paid, and nobody likes paying a middleman. That led to more fraught relations with the tribes nearby. Second, this put Europeans into competition with other Europeans, so they began to leapfrog each other by establishing trading posts closer to the receding sources of furs. This led to Plymouth colonies setting up an outpost on the Kennebec River in Maine, for example, which the French attacked in due course. The Plymouth men begged for help from the much more powerful Massachusetts Bay colony, but were refused, no doubt because the Bay traders were no more interested in Plymouth having an edge than the French. Leapfrogging also led the Dutch to set up a post on the Connecticut River at Hartford, soon to be joined by Plymouth and Massachusetts all in competition with each other. Other examples include the Swedes and the Delaware, the French move from Quebec to Montreal, and the granddaddy of them all, the Dutch trading post at Albany, as close as one could get in those years to the beaver motherlode in upstate New York. The Dutch, in fact, held the advantage for quite some time, because they'd found a way to engage the tribes along Long Island Sound in the mass production of wampum, which was highly prized by the Iroquois nations and their control of the Hudson River gave them a secure trading route from upstate. We covered all of that way back in our episode, Fathoms of Wampum. All of this jostling by the Europeans was matched by the Indian nations of the region. For example, we have seen how the Pequots of Connecticut made a lot of enemies among the local tribes by impressing them to make wampum, by insisting, sometimes by violent means, that only they could trade with the Dutch. Had they not been middlemen in the wampum for beaver game, they might have postponed their fate. I'm not going to dive into that in this episode because we covered it in detail in the first 15 or so minutes of our episode from May 2023. The Pequot War I, the geopolitics of New England in the 1630s. From a very high altitude, let's spin through the Indian nations from Montreal down to St. Mary's City and how they related to each other and European settlers. Unless you know the geography of the Northeast fairly well, it might be easier to follow along if you pop open a map app with, of course, due regard for safety. Certainly don't if you are practicing mumbly peg as you listen, for example. For purposes of this exercise, I'm going to use the names of the Indian nations as most Americans commonly know them, rather than the more precise or accurate names used by academics writing today. By 1640, the fur supply chain originated in territory north, east, and south of the eastern Great Lakes, now known as Huron, Ontario, and Erie. In the territory east of Lake Huron and north of Lake Ontario in today's Canada, the Huron nation sold furs primarily to the French, who had found Montreal for that purpose, among others, on May 17, 1642. Montreal is about 140 miles southwest of Quebec as the Super Crow flies, and somewhat longer as the St. Lawrence flows. That put French soldiers and Huron traders in close proximity to upstate New York the territory of the Iroquois Confederacy. The Iroquois Confederacy consisted of five nations, from the Senecas in far western New York on the eastern shore of Lake Erie, to the Cayugas, the Onondagas, the Oneidas, and the Mohawks, in order from west to east. The Mohawks were closest to the Dutch in Albany. The Mohicans, or Mohicans, Mohicans, who were Algonquin in language and culture, originally controlled eastern New York from roughly Lake George down to roughly Sagerties along the Hudson, and western Vermont and Massachusetts along that same latitude. The most powerful tribal group to the south and west were the Susquehannocks, who controlled central Pennsylvania and northern Maryland, using today's boundaries, all the way down to the northern Chesapeake. They owned the Susquehanna River, the Lenape group ranged along the Delaware River on both banks and dominated New Jersey and southern New York and the Hudson Valley, including the islands at the mouth of that river. Bit players included the Piscataways of the Potomac River Valley and the Nanacokes on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake in today's Delaware and eastern Maryland. During the second half of the 17th century, the Iroquois Confederation would fight their way west into the Great Lakes and eventually control today's Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, and most of Illinois and Kentucky in no small part to control the fur trade. These are the famous Beaver Wars, and I am certain we will devote several episodes to them before we leave the 1600s behind. When precisely that will happen depends, as always, on my muse. For the purpose of most of the next few episodes, the most important tribe in our story will be the Susquehannocks, who sat at the nexus between the Iroquois in New York, the Lenape and New Sweden along the western bank of the Delaware, and the colony of Maryland to the south. So let's spend a little time with them. For that, let's go to one of the most celebrated historians of the Indian nations of the Northeast, Francis Jennings, who wrote a paper in 1968 upon which I have much relied. Glory, death, and transfiguration, the Susquehannock Indians in the 17th century. Quoting Jennings now. The Susquehannocks were once thought to be of a southern origin, but archaeological evidence now confirms a tradition of Mohawk ancestry. Their forebears, along with the ancestors of the Cayugas, are supposed to have split off from the Iroquois Mohawks at about AD 1300. About 1550, The Susquehannocks became identifiable archaeologically as a separate tribal entity, then residing in widespread small hamlets on the north branch of the Susquehanna River, in an area between the present-day cities of Scranton, Pennsylvania, and Binghamton, New York. Sometime before 1570, they migrated from this region, and by 1580, they had settled in a single large community in present-day Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. They appear to have spread out from this center to villages at intervals along their river. Back to me. There's a circumstance of geography that resulted in the perfect positioning of the Susquehannocks to be critical and advantaged players in the fur supply chain. To appreciate this fully, you really should look at a map of Pennsylvania and the northern Chesapeake and Delaware Bays, but I'll try to paint one of my legendary word pictures for those of you who can't. The Susquehanna River drains most of Pennsylvania into the Chesapeake Bay at its most northern point. The main branch of the Susquehanna flows from the north out of New York State's southern tier, which was the heart of Iroquois country. Since in the 17th century there was no better transportation for bulky goods than a river heading in the right direction, it was natural and easy for furs to come into the Chesapeake within easy reach of the English at Kent Island, which, you will recall, is where Thomas Claiborne had set up his fur trading post. As a bonus, the western branch of the Susquehanna was useful for transporting furs from the west, as population of beaver east of the Appalachians became depleted. It gets even better for the Susquehannocks. If you look at the mouth of the Susquehanna River in the Northern Chesapeake, you quickly see that it's a very short distance across today's state of Delaware to the Delaware Bay. From the top of the Elk River across land to the Delaware River, the distance is less than 13 miles as the completely ordinary crow flies. This put the Susquehannocks in communication with New Sweden and because of the Dutch ships plying the Delaware with New Amsterdam. They could effectively force the English, the Swedes, and the Dutch in competition with each other and extract higher prices for the furs they hunted or traded for in Pennsylvania and western New York. Now, if you've been paying super close attention, you might well ask about the Leni Lenape, who controlled both sides of the Delaware River and all of New Jersey. Why didn't they block the Susquehannocks from trading with the Swedes and the Dutch? Well, according to Jennings, they tried. The two nations started with small-scale feuds, and by the mid-1630s, they were in hot war with each other over the fur trade. However, that seems to have been resolved by some sort of treaty by 1638, when Peter We arrived, because sachems of both nations came to greet him. The Susquehannocks seem to have gotten the better of the fight, because there are European accounts from the period that describe the Lenape's as tributaries of the Susquehannocks. At some point, the Lenape's began paying the Susquehannock's an annual tribute in Wampum, which probably signified some other substantive agreement among the tribes. We also know that the Susquehannock's were able to trade for a time in New Amsterdam, which would not have been possible if the Lenape's were in a position to prevent it. Now, on the Indian side, dominance in the fur trade meant military power, because furs bought steel weapons and guns, powder, and shot. By the early 1640s, the Susquehannocks were the most powerful military force in the region, at times even able to defeat Europeans. Now back to Jennings, quote, In the winter of 1643-44, an expeditionary force sent out by Maryland suffered a damaging defeat. Besides casualties suffered on the field, the Marylanders lost 15 prisoners and two small pieces of field artillery. Efforts to ransom the prisoners were rejected. The Susquehannocks tortured them horribly to death. Eight years elapsed before the Susquehannocks made formal peace with Maryland. Back to me. There's not much on the fighting between Maryland and the Susquehannocks. Too bad, it might have been an awesome episode. There is, however, a more detailed passage in Bernard Balin's book, The Barbarous Years. Balin believes that the aforementioned Thomas Claiborne persuaded the Susquehannock's to attack the Marylanders to pay them back for booting them off Kent Island, which story we covered back in April 2023 in our episode, That Time Maryland and Virginia Went to War. Now to Balin, quote, Raw from Harassment by Iroquois Raiders from the North. And alarmed by fears of what Maryland's influence might do to the trade they had developed with Claiborne, the Susquehannocks tore into the Piscataway-Maryland borders at two especially sensitive points. They attacked first the central Piscataway village of Mayone, wiped out the people at the Jesuit mission there, and made off with the supplies. That blow, which destroyed the Jesuits' most promising post, was repeated at their plantation on the Patuxent. When on top of that, settlers only eight miles from St. Mary's Village were killed and eight others elsewhere in the colony were also picked off and their property ravaged, Governor Calvert declared Susquehannock's, Wicocomocos, and Nanticoke's official enemies of Maryland, banned all Indians from entering the colony's territory, and authorized the settlers to shoot any Indians who entered the borders. Elaborate precautions were then taken to defend the colonists against attack. A warning system was devised. Routes of escape from attack and resident fortresses were created, and officers were appointed to enforce martial law when necessary. Though a small militia army was formed under the command of Cornwallis and Lieutenant William Lewis, the Jesuit's zealous chief steward, Indian raids continued with bloodshed on both sides, on one occasion, and at small cost, these troops routed an ambushing force of Susquehannocks, said to number 250 warriors. But then, in 1644, they were defeated. Interjection: The next bit is pretty harsh. So, if you have little kids in the car, this would be a good place to pause the podcast. But um, but um, but um. Okay, back to Balin. Fifteen Maryland militiamen were captured and tortured. They were dropped twice into a raging fire, intensified by bare fat and pitch, then taken out, bound to flaming poles, and slowly roasted, until a designated devil-chaser tore the flesh from their faces, cut out their tongues, cut off their fingers and toes, which he threaded on strings for necklaces and knee bands. And finally, tied them to burning bundles of reeds while boys, with a great noise, shot arrows into their smoldering bodies. Back to me you did not want to lose to the Susquehannocks. In point of fact, the Susquehannocks had accomplished what other tribes confronting Europeans had not. They had won, which the Powhatans, the Lene Lenape, and the Pequots had not done. The Susquehannocks won because they had guns, and they had guns because they controlled the fur trade. During this period, there's evidence that the Susquehannocks tried to organize a fur cartel, a sort of organization of fur-exporting nations. Unfortunately, like almost all cartels, it failed out of distrust. Francis Jennings' account of that attempt includes a useful description of the geopolitics to the north of the Susquehannocks, At one point, the Susquehannock's apparently considered setting up a sort of Indian cartel. At the height of their power, they offered alliance to the Hurons, proposing that they and the Hurons jointly should approach each of the five Iroquois nations separately – Senecas, Cayugas, Onondagas, Oneidas, and Mohawks – to propose a peace which would not hinder the trade of all those countries with one another – those who did not agree would get war. The Hurons were willing to negotiate, but the Mohawks had had enough already of Huron diplomacy. The Mohawks had negotiated with the Hurons and the French in 1645 for a share of the western beaver trade, only to be double-crossed. Besides, the Mohawks would be at a hopeless disadvantage in an unhindered trade. They were compelled by proximity and politics to use Rensselaer Vic or Fort Orange at Albany as their market, and these posts were far more distant from beaver country than either the Huron's market at Montreal or the Susquehannock's market on the Delaware and Chesapeake. Unhindered trade under these conditions would have meant no trade at all for the Mohawks, As George T. Hunt puts it, the Susquehannock embassies went to the Iroquois pleading for a continuance of a trade in which the Iroquois were to have no part. The Mohawks' response was to devastate Huronia in 1649 and 1650. A great Mohawk effort to achieve the same sort of lightning conquest of the Susquehannocks in the winter of 1651 52 was repulsed. But conflicting reports suggest that the Susquehannocks suffered heavy losses. Shortly afterward, they made their peace with Maryland, apparently to be able to concentrate on their northern enemies. Back to me. The Susquehannock peace with the English of Maryland in 1652 put them off sides with the Dutch because the first Anglo-Dutch war broke out that year. Let's then conclude this episode by examining Dutch power in North America. The Dutch were, among the Europeans, the most determined players in the fur game. Unlike the English and even the French, the only true purpose of the Dutch West India Company, which had sponsored New Netherland, was to trade. Now, as we have seen, New Netherland and especially New Amsterdam and the Hudson Valley had almost accidentally developed into a legitimate colony. So there were Dutch and other inhabitants of New Netherland who cared about other things— But the West India Company directors in Amsterdam barely considered their interests. They cared about trade, and specifically, trading in pelts. Therefore, William Keefe's idiotic war notwithstanding, when conditions changed for the Dutch, they also changed for the Indians. Now, until the founding of Montreal in 1642, Indians from Huronia or farther west who wanted to trade furs to the French had to bring them to Trois-Rivières or Quebec, far down the St. Lawrence. That entailed paddling down the Ottawa River and then between 80 and 150 miles along the St. Lawrence. During the time on the St. Lawrence, Indian traders would be exposed to Iroquois attacks, as had been the case even before Samuel de Champlain arrived in those waters almost 40 years before. When the Iroquois captured furs, they would bring them to the Dutch posts near Albany. The new French base at Montreal solved this problem from the perspective of the Hurons and the French because it eliminated the dangerous journey on the St. Lawrence, This was bad news for the Dutch, however, because it cut off a big source of the furs coming to Albany. Recall as well that the trade on the Connecticut River had been disrupted by the leapfrogging trading posts of the English in the mid-1630s. Now, in the early 1640s, New Sweden made a turn for the aggressive, a topic we will discuss in greater detail in the future. Governor Johann Prince, who had been appointed with a bit of a lag after the death in a hurricane of Peter Wee, proceeded to build a series of leapfrogging blockhouses to control the Susquehannock's trade on the Delaware. In 1644-45, a year or so into Keefe's idiotic war with the Lenape, who were, as we said, now tributaries of the Susquehannock, Prince sent an emissary to the Susquehannock's to negotiate an exclusive trading arrangement for Sweden. New Netherland was suddenly cut off from furs in essentially every direction. It was no wonder, as we saw at the end of the episode on Keefe's war, that the Dutch negotiated a treaty with the Mohawks. The Indians drove a hard bargain, demanding guns and ammunition in mass quantities in order to divert furs to the Dutch. It was with Dutch arms that the Mohawks smashed the Hurons in 1649 and 50 and less successfully attacked the Susquehannocks a couple of years later. This seems like a good place to stop right now. The purpose of this episode was to create a framework for examining the period between Keefe's War and the fall of New Netherland to the English in 1664, the fate of New Sweden, turmoil in Maryland, and the great period of Iroquois conquest in the second half of the 17th century. Before we get to any of that, however, we will head south, out of beaver country, to opa last battle. Thank you again for listening. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a five-star rating on Apple and following me on Twitter and the Facebook page for the podcast. And don't forget to tell me whether you can be in Denver. Until next time.